God, you have set us in this time and place, proclaims the hymn that gathered us together this morning. And though many of the images that we went on to sing were steeped in the brassy confidence of that venerable hymn tune, I'm wondering if you might be finding the mood of this particular holiday weekend, as I am, a bit more complicated. It's good, I guess, that we should trumpet our high aspirations like a fanfare, bravely and proudly. That's certainly been the default theme of the national birthday party. But I can't help feeling that this year it might weigh on us more heavily to have been set by God in this time and place. That we might even be tempted to mutter, yeah, and thanks a lot. I do believe, with all my heart, that God gives us time as an instrument of grace. And I know that God gives us gifts to wield within time, such as we have, that can help us to rise even to the challenges that we inflict gratuitously upon ourselves. All the same, in the spirit of the fourth, as I think of the challenge to form a more perfect union, I find those words casting a noticeable shadow of melancholy for me this weekend. Or maybe it's even a tinge of bitterness. The distance between this time and place and anything more perfect seems to be widening before our very eyes with the agency and dignity of women as stewards of their own lives suddenly being defined as criminal offenses, and with the most notorious specimens of political leadership shrinking to new lows of vicious mendacity, with our own Copley Square as the backdrop yesterday for marching white supremacists, and the double-barreled violence of our national addictions to guns and fossil fuels. Oh God, this is a hard time and place where you have set us. As freedom gets reduced to platitudes of self-congratulation, while the hard, hard work of democracy and justice languishes. It punctures the mood of triumph and in its place, an unrequited yearning rises and gathers urgency, yearning for a quality of union, a quality of civic life, a quality of inner peace. Well, I think God draws especially near to us when we open our hearts and our arms and our imaginations and say, oh Lord, what now? Maybe we need a burst of trumpets to awaken both us and God to the urgency with which today we're leaning into that prayer. This is a time for leaning forward into God's future, toward God's hope for all the good that can come into the world because we're trying to hold fast to the light of mercy and justice and beauty. With some help this morning from a splendid book by Susan Cain called Bittersweet, 
I've come to actually think that our longing, even the sense of urgent sadness that now tinges the love of things that we have prized so highly for so long, is one of God's gifts to us in this time and place. So, let's begin thinking about that leaning by punching a hole in the ceiling. Oh, there is one. <laughs> That's how the Gospel of Mark starts his story. Actually, before the story is through, a lot of barriers will get pushed through. Not just the ceiling of that house in Capernaum, but also a crowd that didn't even realize they were in the way of anything. And also a whole lot of assumptions get pushed through, as we'll see when we start to notice what's going on with the scribes who are also sitting there in the corner. Before it's through the complicated boundary between sin and suffering gets pushed through. And eventually even the barrier between the present and the future. It's interesting, isn't it, that the person at the center of the story of all this pushing through things is someone who, as the story begins, actually can't even move. The problem, at least externally, is paralysis, an illness of some kind that has caused this person to be completely dependent on other people for mobility. But there's an internal problem, too. We can't see it at first, but Jesus can. Jesus is going deep. Jesus knows about the paralytic because Jesus knows about all of us that there are things we carry inside that keep us from moving, that pin us to the past, things that crave forgiveness. Most of us know something about the longing to move on, the ache to be freed from stuckness. So Jesus goes deep. He starts by speaking directly to the inner knot that this paralyzed person is carrying. You're forgiven, Jesus says. Which, as far as the watching scribes are concerned, is audacious to the point of blasphemy. It punches a hole in the rules they play by, especially their assumptions that if some itinerant rabbi or anybody else goes around offering the restoring love of God to just anybody, it'll run out, or stop meaning anything, or worse from their point of view, it'll raise the dignity of some people that they don't think deserve it. It'll nourish the agency of people they'd like to continue to look down on. The story doesn't tell us how many of them there were sitting in that corner, but just this particular week in the history of the world, maybe we could imagine that there were, I don't know, Six. With their fingers in the pages of the rule book that they think places limits on access to God's forgiveness, the scribes are scandalized. How dare this fellow proclaim the forgiveness of God? Interestingly, the story says that they question in their hearts 
They don't sputter their outrage out loud, but they don't have to because Jesus is going deep. Jesus knows hearts and knows that the kinds of things that get muttered in certain kinds of very small hearts are like that. So Jesus says, more or less, the thing about God is that God wants people to be able to move on. Let's see how much God wants this one to be free. And then Jesus turns to the paralytic and says, more or less, why don't you show us what freedom means to you? There's no explaining what happens next. But a few minutes later, the one who'd been unable to move is walking out of a world that used to be only as narrow as a mat and into a world that's as wide as the word home. And Jesus has taken the low ceiling of the scribe's pinched view of God clean off. Now the boundary between the states of health of our bodies and our inner lives is a complicated boundary, isn't it? We always need to remember that physical infirmity is not a symptom of moral failing. The illnesses that burden some people in this world are not a form of punishment for their sins because illness is not a moral state. But for most of us, the relationship to our body is very much influenced by our relationship to our inner lives. And when one is restored or unburdened, the other one can often move on more freely, more lightly. We are permeable to well-being in all of our dimensions. In fact, I'd venture to say that well-being is actually one of the most contagious aspects of our existence, individually and collectively. Aren't we so often drawn to be near people, be with people who just seem well? One of God's best things is requiting our yearning for well-being. God desires our wholeness as earnestly as we do or more. And so Jesus has things to say to each dimension of our longing that can help restore each and all of our dimensions. No less a figure than Paul felt the ache of the longing for the good. We do not know how to pray as we ought, he wrote in anguish. But the very Spirit of God intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. Those words of his remind me that the way to belonging to the family of God, in the family of God, is to be longing. To be leaning toward the good that we desire, toward the vindication of the values of love and justice that matter most to us. It's our longing that gives this journey meaning. If we weren't leaning in, that's when we'd be stuck. 
It's the laboring pains of yearning that get us leaning toward the birth of the new time, the wholeness that God intends for us. Well, with that kind of longing in mind, let's go back for one last look at that full house in Capernaum. Because we need not to miss one other thing about that story, without which there would have been no miracle at all that evening. It's not just the story of one person's healing. It's also the story of those four people who started the breaking of the barriers by dismantling the roof and with it any sense of sealing on the power of God to get us moving. The story doesn't tell us how many times the four of them had to walk around the house looking for a way to get their friend in. It doesn't tell us how many shoulders they tapped on, how many elbows they tugged to no avail, how much they tried to nudge through all those people who probably had no idea that their focus on Jesus was keeping anybody else out, which is a reminder to us to remember to pay attention to what's going on at the outer edges of our wrapped community. The story doesn't tell us how long it took the four of them to get their immobile friend up on the roof. And I love that the movement in this story depends, did you notice, on structural change. The roof has to come off. We don't even know how much faith, if any, their paralyzed friend had. Maybe it was one of those situations where the four of them said to their friend, look, it doesn't matter how much you believe. We'll believe for you until you can believe for yourself. But the text says, Randy read this, that it was when Jesus saw their faithfulness, plural, their faithfulness, that Jesus said to the paralyzed one, you're free, you're moving, you're forgiven. As though to say, with people like that around, we have something new ready to begin in this time and place. With fidelity like that, we have movement. With faith like that, there is a church. There is a future. With friends like that, there will be change. People like that move the world. The late New Testament theologian Walter Wink wrote that history belongs to the intercessors. They believe the future into being. History belongs to the intercessors. They believe the future into being. The story of this body that we are is the story being written by the intercessors, the ones who pour out their prayers, the ones who push the barriers, the ones who remove the ceiling between us and the generosity, the power, the healing, and the forgiveness of God. It's their leaning, their yearning, their longing that ends up enabling us all to be long. They believe the future into being. And who are the intercessors? Well, of course, 
you are surrounded by them now in this room, in this time and place, the intercessors. I like to think of this as a place for pooling and concentrating our longing as intercessors. And you know, Old South, I know that cracks develop in these walls from time to time and they're a source of stress, but think of them as ways for your longing to leak out into the world that needs to long with us. That tower of yours, wherever it is, over there, right? as a way of standing tall with your longing in the skyscape proudly of this city. The intercessors, we intercessors, are leaning toward a more perfect union, longing together for the time when the fanfare can finally announce the vindication of this long and so costly struggle. Our longing will take us places that God wants us to go in a world as wide as the word home, including through the structures that need to be moved out of the way. Jesus is going deep, and we need to go deep with him, even into the ache and through the valley of the shadow of longing because to belong to this movement is to be longing, actively, urgently. And my question to you this morning, Old South, in this time and place is, can you stay with the feeling? Amen.